0: Welcome to Marissa's Wicked Word Nosh, a place to chow down on topics relevant to writers of all kinds. Hello, and welcome to Marissa's Wicked Word Nosh. I'm Marissa, and I hope that wherever you are, you're staying well. Things are starting to open back up again around me. And there's a part of me that can understand that. And I hope it goes well. I really do. I don't believe staying in a state of permanent lockdown is the answer. But at the same time, I think we need to take this slowly Keep up the social distancing and wear a mask or bandana when we're in public. And everyone who's trying to make taking precautions into a political thing. I know you're probably not listening to me to begin with. And on the off chance that you are, you're not going to care. But I'm going to say it anyway, because this is my podcast, damn it. Stop it. It's not a quote unquote liberal position to take. It's not arrogant. It's common sense. It's taking care of yourself and your neighbor. Some of us might call that being a responsible citizen. But I'll give you this. Even if you don't feel the need to protect yourself and others, why should you feel threatened if someone else feels the need to take precautions? Does someone else wearing a mask inconvenience you so much that you need to make a sign and join a protest against pompous liberalism or, God forbid, threaten employees in stores who are wearing face masks? I mean, that's just, I, I don't even have the words. I watch the news and I feel more and more like the chick from that old Molly Shannon sketch on SNL, the one who was like, don't get me started. Jesus, that was so long ago, I thought Sherry O'Terry did it, not Molly Shannon. I think I mixed up Don't Get Me Started with Simma Down Now, which was the one Sherry O'Terry used to do. That one's fitting too, come to think of it. I've heard a lot of people over the years say SNL isn't funny, but damn, some of those old sketches really stick with you. And there comes a day when they're more relevant than ever, even though some of your younger listeners may be thinking, what the hell is she going on about? I actually had no intention of arguing in favor of SNL when I sat down to start working on this podcast. Although now that we're on this topic, I'll share one little known fun fact about me that happens to be SNL related. I have a crush on Bill Hader. I feel much better now. Anyway, as it turns out, what I've just said about SNL actually ties in quite well with the topic of today's podcast. Satire. The Cambridge Advanced Learner's Dictionary and Thesaurus defines satire as, quote, a way of criticizing people or ideas in a humorous way, especially in order to make a political point or a piece of writing that uses this style, unquote. In addition to SNL, you see it on The Daily Show and numerous other late night talk shows. In Family Guy and South Park. In movies such as, here's an old favorite of mine, Dr. Strangelove, and more recently, The Interview. And you see it online if you read The Onion and or McSweeney's. And if you still read newspaper cartoons, good for you, by the way, you see it in Gary Trudeau's Doonesbury. And hell, if you're a long-time Monty Python fan like I am, you may even have grown up with it. But just because you see it in so many places doesn't mean it's easy to write. Which is why... I wanted to dedicate this episode to exploring what makes good satire so satisfying and discuss what you may want to focus on and, in some cases, avoid if you want to try your hand at writing satire. The first thing I'm going to say from my own experiences watching it and reading it and trying to write it is you will most likely offend some people. It's inevitable. That might actually attract some people to writing satire. I'm not one of them. But even so, I realize that's just the nature of the form. Satire involves that risk. And you need to be cognizant of that risk going into it. That said, to the extent that it's possible, I think it's best to focus on calling attention to what you see as the flaw in some system or other rather than painting your target in the worst possible light. You may end up doing the latter anyway, but I think that individuals who are familiar with satire can distinguish between something written out of a genuine desire to improve some aspect of society and something that's flat-out mean-spirited. It's pretty clear to me when the intention of satire is just to smear a person or group. And even if that's a person or group that I feel deserves it, it's not satisfying to me. It seems too easy. On the whole, I think the majority of satire fans are sophisticated. As Hugh Holub says in a piece I'm going to include a link to in the show notes for this episode, quote, The best satire is very literate. You don't need to stoop to, say bathroom humor to be effective. Unless, perhaps, the target of your piece actually got caught doing something risque in a bathroom somewhere. And even then, you know what I'm saying. It may help you to remember that there's not just one form of satire. There's juvenile satire, which tends to be heavy on irony and can be pretty abrasive. An article by Todd Posemny that I'm linking to points out that the Roman poet Juvenal, after whom this form of satire was named, used, quote, exaggeration and parody to make his targets appear monstrous or incompetent, unquote. This form contrasts with Horatian satire, which Alan Rankin describes as lighthearted and more gentle. Its main purpose is to point out, quote, general human failings, unquote. According to Rankin, this form of satire comes from another Roman poet, Horace, who used satire to poke fun of the popular philosophical beliefs of his time. The Simpsons is a good contemporary example of Horatian satire. Contrast that with maybe Family Guy which I think is a strong current example of Juvenalian satire. One writer who was able to pull off both forms well was Jonathan Swift. If you read A Modest Proposal in High School, as I did, that was the essay that proposed that poor Irish folk sell their kids for food. You know which one I'm talking about. You probably sense the moral indignation behind the serious tone of the piece whereas the satire in Gulliver's Travels was more subtle. I've mentioned exaggeration and parody as two techniques that you can use in writing a satirical piece. Another approach to take is to point out the absurdity in something. I focused on absurdist literature a few episodes back, hint, hint. But for some more examples, There are a number of Monty Python skits you've either seen or can watch on YouTube, such as the Spanish Inquisition or the Ministry of Silly Walks, and they demonstrate how effective the use of the absurd can be. You can also use reversal, in which whatever position you want to support, you take the opposing view as a means of showing just how ludicrous you feel the opposing side is. This is the method Swift used in a modest proposal, and I think it's effective because it forces you, as the writer, to analyze the viewpoint you're criticizing. It may help you see nuances that you wouldn't have seen if your desire to attack it was more obvious. You may expose a little-known detail that your audience wasn't aware of that may make your case more effective. And your own convictions might become stronger as a result. I wouldn't worry about the possibility that viewing something from the opposing side might cause you to join that side. If that's the case, your original position probably wasn't all that strong to begin with. That brings me to the next point to remember about writing satire. Write about something you genuinely care about. Maybe you like the idea of satire, but politics on the whole doesn't interest you very much. That's okay. Really, it's okay. And it doesn't mean you can't write something satirical. Just look at the world around you, the circles you run in, if you will. A lot of skits in Portlandia weren't political, but they made effective statements about hipster culture and were funny as hell. Or, going back to my thing for Bill Hader, his show Barry satirizes aspiring actors, among other things, which hits home with me as someone who's taken numerous acting classes. I always hated the mirror exercise, if you must know. Another thing to keep in mind is, try to stick to people, things, and scenarios that your audience will be able to easily recognize. You should challenge them, as I indicated earlier, but you don't want to lose them with, say, an obscure literary, philosophical, or pop culture reference. Another fun fact about me, I'm actually a huge fan of obscure literary, philosophical, and pop culture references, but I realize that most others aren't. So I've made an effort not to include many of these in my satirical pieces because I don't want my readers to be detracted from my main point, scratching their heads and wondering what on earth I'm talking about. I don't think this necessarily means you need to choose targets your audience specifically knows. For example, going back to politics, there may be senators or representatives that you'd like to lampoon that most of your readers won't know unless they compulsively watch CNN or MSNBC. However, They may easily recognize the position you want to argue against, or they may never have been exposed to that viewpoint before, but that doesn't mean they can't learn about it. As for whether you as the writer should know about what you're satirizing, this is another topic that I devoted a past podcast episode to, and I do think this is a case in which it's important for you to write about what you know. And if you're not sure about a specific detail, either leave it out altogether or, at the very least, research it thoroughly. There's a difference between exaggerating for effect and saying something that you think is factual, but which can easily be proven as untrue. Not only will that not effectively convey the point you're trying to make, but it'll make you look like a writer who didn't do their homework. There are a few other problem areas to watch out for. A big one is to be careful about who you select as a target, especially if you're focusing on real-life figures. Defamation is a complex topic, so I'm not going to get too much into it in this episode, although I think it's important for writers to be aware of, so I may explore it more in a future episode. But you're much less likely to be sued for libel if you focus on well-known public figures. And even in that case, you should focus on that person's ideas or mannerisms rather than, say, their religion, racial or ethnic background, definitely no-nos, and or family. An exception might be made if the family members are themselves highly visible, but even so, Proceed with caution here, folks. A good thing to keep in mind is if an idea is truly absurd, it's probably strong enough to stand on its own in a satirical piece. So, why do you need to include extra information that's only likely to offend a portion of your audience? That also applies to obscenity, it's unnecessary unless you're specifically targeting, say, the adult entertainment industry. So if you use it, you're likely to accomplish nothing other than needlessly offending part of your audience. As a reader or viewer, I'm not offended by obscenity in the conventional sense, meaning that if I wore pearls, it wouldn't cause me to clutch my pearls or anything like that. But I feel like a satirist who uses gratuitous obscenity assumes that I'm not evolved enough to appreciate something more refined, which pisses me off. As far as timeliness, I think a satirist should develop a sense of when it's too soon to poke fun at something. What we're going through right now is a good example. A little over a week ago, I woke up one morning got on Twitter, saw a link to a statement Lysol issued, warning us not to ingest as products to ward off COVID-19, and initially, I thought I was reading an Onion article. Considering what I'd seen in quote-unquote press briefings in re- previous weeks, I should have known better, but since that happened... I've seen a number of satirical posts online about the president's comments about ingesting disinfectant. So you can probably get away with satirizing something like that. Or say you might take on all of the baking people have been doing since they started self-quarantining. And I'm not poking fun at the baking personally. I actually think it's really cool that people are baking. I'm just bringing it up as a potential source of some good old... Lighthearted Horatian satire. But these are still tough times, so it'll be tasteless for you to try and satirize other aspects of this crisis now. Even if you think something about the way it's being handled needs to be changed. Some topics might never be okay to satirize. That's fine. We'll always have politicians and celebrities doing stupid things so we'll never run out of material I think it's obvious that I'm a fan of satire and I think there's a real need for it I'd encourage you to do your research read it watch it not only will you learn from the masters but you'll enjoy yourself greatly I think that's why satire is so important to me it gives us something to think about but can also make us laugh. And by the way, I'm recording this on what I found out shortly before recording this is World Laughter Day. We all need that right now. Anyway, let me know what your favorite examples of satire are. Email me at marissadeleforfalle at gmail.com. And I'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, as it'll help a lot more people find out about this show. Until next time, thanks for listening and for all of your support. I really hope you take care of yourselves and stay well. And remember, World Laughter Day. Peace. This podcast has been brought to you by Anchor, which is the easiest way to make a podcast. Go to anchor.fm for more info.